Well, this is still, I believe, the age of the identity crisis, although my son tells me that most of my phrases are you know, two or three years out of date. But have you ever walked down a street and caught a glimpse of somebody in a window and thought, who's that? And then thought, oh, no, it's not, and it is, it's you. Well, um, who am I? I'm Madeline Lengel. I'm married. I have three children, an assortment of animals. I've had the same husband for 24 years because he's extremely patient. Um, <laughs> And I write books, of which 15 somehow or other have managed to get published. And I have sitting opposite me a young man named Phil Culbertson. And he can contradict me about who I am, and I'll contradict him about who he is. Who are you, Phil? Well, I'm sort of, a, I suppose, a dabbler, an entrepreneur, having to do with um, music, composition, some theological thought, some creative writing, um, a little bit of talent booking around town just a little bit of everything that keeps me sort of happy by doing, having my fingers in all kinds of pies. Well, I don't think that's a bad idea. Why do you have your fingers in the pies? Well, I think that probably relates to the fact that some things we're going to talk about pretty soon, but it also has to do with the fact that I don't have any choice in the matter. I really kind of have to. It's sort of like I compulsively have to be involved in things because it's, a, it's the way I create and by always constantly giving and doing and building and making. Well, this is more or less that we were talking about at lunch the other day. You remember my friend who was in uh, Yale Theological School? And uh, they used to bring in all kinds of famous people to talk to these kids. And one they brought in was a child psychiatrist. Now, my friend Ray was a Virginian. And the psychiatrist's name was either Dr. Sin, and Ray called him Dr. Sen, or he was Dr. Sen, and Ray called him Dr. <coughs> Sin. I think it was probably Dr. Sen, so we'll go on that way. And please forgive me, Dr. Sen, if this ever comes to your ears. Um, Dr. Sen came in one night to have an informal evening with all of the young married students. And they were going to be allowed to ask him anything they wanted to about, oh, problems of home life and marriage and child upbringing. And one of the young mothers said, Dr. Sen, why is it that everything in the household falls apart just around dinner time? And he said, oh, well, you know most of the obvious reasons. You've spent most of the day struggling with diapers and formulas and washing machines that run over and vacuum cleaners. And by that time, your children are tired. They're cranky. They want their suppers. They want to be put to bed. They're going to be whiny and most unattractive. Your husbands come in, and they don't want to hear about domestic crises. They've had their own problems during the day, and they're not going to be as patient with you as they might at another time. And these are all the obvious reasons, and you know them. But the real reason, and he paused and he said, you're probably going to want to contradict me, but the real reason is that we're all afraid of the dark. Well, there was a loud clamor of contradiction, and Dr. Sen waited until it died down, and then he said, you know, the violence of your response proves the truth of my words. And this, this story hit me rather hard, because I suppose I think we are all afraid of the dark, at least I am. Um, and why? So what, what, what does this mean? I think for me it means that the reason I write or struggle with Bach fugues on the piano or put on a record or go to the theater, my husband's an actor, um, is because in a way this is lighting a candle by which to see. 
I think that uh, art is what we see by. What do you think, Phil? Well, I was, I was thinking as you were saying that about some of the multiple people I know who, who are artists or consider themselves to be artists or, or who are addicted to art, as it were. Uh, they're, you know, they're people who I, I'm always constantly aware of being afraid of, um, well, maybe dark isn't, of course, always dark, dark, like in night and things like that. And, of course, th that being a very vivid image. But dark is also loneliness and, and rejection and being forsaken. And those things all relate to the dark, too. And many of the people I know who are artists are artists and, and constantly must be creating partially because they're afraid of being alone. They're, by creating, they surround themselves with, with things that they must give to people and, and build relationships through this, even though they're often not even measured relationships. They build by creating. They push the dark away by, by holding up sort of a candle of beauty of, of their own creation. Yeah, I, that's very good. I, thi I think we've got to remember that dark has nothing to do with uh, the light spectrum of, of colors, that it, it, it's an absence, a negation, and you're right, that, that then we are alone, we can't find other people. Uh, you don't read or dance or go to the theater to be alone. You do it because you want to stretch out and make contact with other human beings and thereby somehow or other learn more about yourself. Uh, and, and then I think we think <coughs> of, uh, again of this story about Ray and being afraid of the dark, that what we're using is the language of myth. And for me, this is very important. Now, there are all kinds of definitions of myth today, and I think maybe I better make clear what mine is. Um, a myth is something that makes the finite human being capable of perceiving more truth. Um, and what is truth, suggesting Pilate? Well, there was an atheistic Harvard professor who told his students, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he said, I'm not really sure where that comes from, but it's terribly important. Uh, but there's also a book by Eric Fromm, which has influenced me a great deal, called The Forgotten Language. And in this book, Fromm says that the only universal language, and therefore the only language of any hope today, is the language of myth parable, fairy tale, dream, that this language cuts across all barriers of nationality, race, space, and chronology, too. The dreams that we all dream are interpretable anywhere, in any century. We do have basic mythic images. And I think the literature that really has lasted is the literature that uses those ba basic mythic images, like, like uh, Odysseus's voyage. Uh, anybody can read that, which was written how many centuries ago by a man nobody knows about. They think he was a wandering poet called Homer who was blind, but nobody really knows. And yet he's really our journey, too. We do the same kind of search that he does. It's all in images that we can understand. In, in reading Joyce, in a, in a course that I'm taking at NYU, we are talking much about Joyce's attitudes in writing Ulysses of, of reverting back to the Homeric epics and the structure of, of those things and the kind of heroes and, and heroines that appear in them because they, 
the Homeric epics create these great universal kind of characters that people really know how to relate to or, or re that really mean something to these people because they can recognize so much of their own aspirations and dreams there, even though it's not very clearly spelled out. It's a much more subconscious kind of understanding in many cases. Yeah, I think this is important because uh, you've hit on something that, that I feel quite passionately about. I'm tired of the anti-hero. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want in art somebody that I'm not humiliated to identify with. I want somebody who's going to make me feel that the human being, not on his own, but somehow or other, can really be nobler than we think we can. And I think that the, the great heroes of, of art, like Ulysses or Odysseus, whoever you want to call him, um, are in a way points of reference for us. And we all need points of reference to know where we're going. Well, it's you know, the analogy that I've used before, Phil. Uh, if you're sitting in a railroad station and you're in a train that's standing still, and the train on the next track starts to move, you get the illusion that it's your train that's moving backwards. Mm. And if you're going to know which train is moving and in which direction, you have to have a point of reference. Now that point of reference may be a person standing on the platform. And you look at that person and you know by him that it's your train that's moving or not moving and in which direction. Now the point of reference isn't going to tell you, but nevertheless, it's through him that you know now, the great classical hero is not going to tell you uh, which direction you're moving on or if you're moving at all, but it is how you know. And that makes sense to you? Yeah, that, yes. And I think by uh, sort of giving in to the cult of the anti-hero, we also fall into the two awful errors. One is of thinking that truth is only provable fact. Now, I am not against science. I, it absolutely and totally fascinates me. But I am against the fact that quite often in schools, only science is really taken seriously. And therefore, the younger kids are no longer taught myths or fairy tales. And when they get a bit older, they're no longer given things like the tempest, because the tempest isn't true. It's not provable fact. And so you lose entirely the language of myth, and this is our only hope. And I think this story that you tell about uh, recent stories you've heard about the educational system and what kids are picking up is a particularly pertinent horror story about this point. Which one? The, uh, the one about meeting so many students who had not read anything. Oh, in, yes, in, I was. Through their I was, secondary yeah. education. I was teaching a sort of crash course in the humanities to a group of kids who had had, I think, probably the best that our educational system can offer, which is really very, very good. Um, you know, my children have gone through it, I've gone through it, and you know, obviously I'm much <laughs> obligated to it, so this is not just a destructive comment. But I was horrified. Two of these women, one of whom was a registered nurse, had never heard of Plato. They had, they had heard of Shakespeare, but never read any of him, nothing. And certainly they'd never seen a Shakespeare play. And this is quite terrifying. And another thing that, thank heavens, is more or less over is the idea of giving children a controlled vocabulary. There was a gimmick going on a number of years ago where writers for children, and any number of writers were, were called, I mean, people who had not written for children before, and said, would you like to write a book for children? We will give you a list of words which you may use, because this is a vocabulary the children are capable of understanding, mm -hmm. and you must not use a word that is outside of this list. Well, um, my blood pressure is quite low. <laughs> it rose. It rose mightily. No, because um, 
We think not in visual images. We think only with words. And the greater our vocabulary is, the more our power of conceptual thinking. So that if our cap vocabulary is limited, we're limited, we're made less, our personalities are diminished, we can't grow. When I was a kid, which was, um, oh, back during the Punic Wars, uh, I read all kinds of books. My parents, fortunately, did not censor my reading at all. And when I came across a word I didn't understand, which was about every other page, I didn't go piously to look it up in a dictionary. I just went on reading. But by the time I'd come across the word four or five times, I'd more or less figured out what it meant, and so my vocabulary grew and developed, and therefore my power to think grew and developed. Mm. In reading your book, Wrinkle in Time, you use tesseract, which is a, an impossible word for the age of children that, that, that do, I guess, with the reading in Wrinkle in Time. I don't know, I, aimed for teenagers, I suppose. It, no, it's not. Mm. It's not aimed for anybody. I wrote it for myself. <laughs> and, and one reason it was rejected by so many publishers was they didn't know whether it was for grown-ups or not, <laughs> well, or for kids or not, but it was too hard for grown-ups. Tesseract is a very difficult word, and it was a difficult concept, but it's for you real, know, though. I mean, you'll find it in a footnote in any major ordinary dictionary, and then you will really find it in any scientific well, dictionary. The point is that if you'd had to function under this limited vocabulary system, you could have never played around with Tesseract, which is the whole point of the book. Well, at the, yeah, at the point that the book was being written, too, the limited vocabulary thing was right in full swing, and I imagine that this was another reason it got rejected so many times. Uh, Happily, you know, it's, it's very much of a Cinderella story. It's, it's uh, selling very well indeed. It has for a number of years. But you know, I, I think that, that anybody who wants to, to be an artist resents violently anything that's going to manipulate us or diminish us. And uh, to try to manipulate or diminish vocabulary, as Madison Avenue, my pet scapegoat, does, is, is wicked, to say the least. It's not... Uh, not to say that one can't function within form or within structure. We talked about this when I was taking your course last year at General Seminary, but, but one still cannot have too many restrictions placed on one's creativity or else, or else the creativity will eventually wither. I was, I was just thinking about the conversation I was having last night with some people at, uh, in which we were talking about the idea of, uh, and it's been done a hundred times, I'm sure, but of setting up a center where people could be free enough to experiment and create in all kinds of ways and not worry about the restrictions of whether this material was going to sell or that material was going to sell. I mean, they would just be free to create. Well, know. there there have been and are some such centers like the yes. McDowell Colony. Right. Well, you remember the friend through whom we met, who subsequently became my son-in-law, mm -hmm. uh, and teaches... Uh, he's English, and at this point he's teaching ethics and politics and theology in a college in England. But we had a, a mammoth battle at the dining table one evening because he said that um, language is dead, is obsolete, and if it's to revive again or be reborn like the phoenix from the ashes, we have to do violence to it. Now, obviously, I was very threatened by this. I mean, this is la la words of my part of our livelihood. And he was hitting me right in the vital, most vital spot. But I began to realize that we really were absolutely in accord because what we have tended to do in our day and age is to use language as uh, something to save us, to barricade us so that we uh, can... Be, can escape from the violence that really is inherent in the use of, of words. 
and that what we have to start to do to revive language is to take the simplest words we possibly have to try to break through to each other, but really to mean them. We have to do violence to the platitudes and jargon and all the safe cushions of small talk with which we insulate ourselves. And we have to stop being afraid to talk about the things that really matter. As a matter of fact, I realize that I have been timid about using the word God because um, it's, it's become an embarrassing thing to do to say, yes, I believe in God. It, it, it matters to me. Okay, let's get that over with. with. I do. Um, <laughs> and we also, in, in talking with each other, have to stop being afraid of being silent together because that's another way that words get used. And do you remember several years ago there was a, an ad for an electric waste paper basket? This was, I suppose, aimed at executives. And you had an electric waste paper basket in your office and you put in the things that you didn't want anybody to see and they all got chewed up. And uh, we tend to want electric <laughs> waste paper baskets instead of to air these things, to t take out the things that are most important to us and say, okay, here I am and this makes me vulnerable takes off my armor, but uh, if, if we don't, we're never going to get anywhere. We're not going to communicate with each other. Your ad for, for the electric waste paper basket sounds to me like the whole image behind Madison Avenue and, and the sort of the, you know, you hide the things that you don't want people to see. You, you, you chew them up in a waste basket and pitch them away. You do that with your, when you're advertising a product, which may have certain specific drawbacks, or, or you do that with your own personal image when you meet people in conversation. I mean, not saying that you ought to, but I'm saying that people do. One does. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I think Madison Avenue was, uh, sorry, Madison Avenue, but I think it was, it was behind this controlled vocabulary experiment. <laughs> because if you control people's vocabulary, then uh, they can't think and they're more apt to buy the product. Does that have anything to do with Animal Farm or something like that? Yes. <laughs> and 1984. Right. <laughs> or is that the right year? Yes, that's the right year. That's marvelous. That's I got it right. Very far us. away, either. No, but we're sort of there. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, did you read in the Times yesterday? There was there was an article about uh, a physicist, I think, who now lives on the Cape, and he's saying that the entire world has changed totally and utterly since the Second World War, since nuclear fission, and that it's being run on the whole by people who are still living in the old world, the obsolete world, and he feels that the only possible hope for the future is, is through youth and through accepting the fact that we do live in an utterly new world and that we have to try to communicate with each other in a language which is comprehensible in this time. Again, I go back to myth, because he really was talking mythically in this. And we, you know, I sing in a review, and a musical review, and we write all our own material, and in, in trying to think about what we wanted to sing about that was really important to us, again and again and again, we revert back to sort of a humorous musical retelling of, of myths or fairy tales, such as, I mean, I grew up on a steady dose of Grimm and Anderson when I was young, and it was, I mean, I couldn't, thank my parents enough for that kind of thing. Oh, you were terribly lucky because yeah, people tried to cut Grimm out because he was Grimm. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, you know, when we wanted to sing a story about about yeah. beauty on the inside kind of thing about, you know, but it's not really quite so important what, what people look like is what people think or what people feel, you know, we, where do we revert to the story of the princess and who kissed the toad and he turned into a charming prince, you know, and she yeah. had enough guts to kiss the toad. Well, you revert back to those kind of things because they make sense to people now still, I think. 
Well, if, if we're going to try to be truthful with each other, and, and, and you were in that, and also in your marvelous song, Lady Giraffe, uh, but we do, again, we make ourselves vulnerable. We take away the kind of language that protects us. We're naked to hurt. But also, we assume involvement in and responsibility for the person or people with whom we're trying to be truthful. And this is violent, this moment of truth. And it's often quite painful. But when it happens, we're neither anxious nor lonely, and we've helped to tear down a little of the wall that we have built to shield us from the brilliant power of approaching words as they were meant to be approached, of using language that helps our imagination grow so that our knowledge can expand into wisdom, and then from wisdom, it, we have a hope it will expand to the truth that will make us free. And I, um, speaking, you know, you again, you bring we bring up loneliness, which is what we talked about at the beginning of this period, and I, I, I really think this is a threatening thing for the artist. I, 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 you know, would reiterate that fact. You know, to talk about it, to reject an artist's work is to threaten him with loneliness, to beat him over the head. with Oh yes, it is, and I know because I had ten years of rejection before right. I moved into you know being a, a regularly published writer. But something that that helped me very much during that time was Einstein's constant reiteration of the need for mystery in the scientist's life as well as in the artist's life. And he said that anyone who doesn't accept and glory in mystery, and this is, these are Einstein's words, he said, is as good as dead, a burnt out candle. And then right. another thing is that Freud said that the only two kinds of people who defy psychological knowledge are the artist and the saint, and none of the rules of psychology <laughs> hold for them. So that gives us some hope. I mean, we have a candle and a, and a light like we did before. And I, I'm going to contradict what you said about yourself at the beginning and your self-identity crisis situation. I'm an amiable giraffe wandered in off the veldt to station WNYC. What you do is you take people like me and teach and have conversations like this, you know, people who want to learn about art. And that's really kind of a great thing, too. And there need to be people who can be sages in the field of art and teach aspiring young artists how to be a little wiser. Thank you very much, Madeline Lengel and Philip Culbertson, for a delightful conversation on Penn, poet, editor, novelist.